Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. The Podcast Playground. Welcome to the Taking a Walk podcast, music history on foot. No podcast covers music storytelling like Taking a Walk. If you like what you hear, please share it with your friends. We're available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Playground, or wherever you get your podcasts. On Taking a Walk, Buzz Night covers all genres and eras from new artists to Hall of Famers and everyone in between. On this episode, we welcome an artist who's been working at his craft his entire life. Johnny Polonsky is a multi-instrumentalist, a singer-songwriter, and a record producer. He's worked with Johnny Cash, and he's been produced by Rick Rubin. His new release on Loose Groove Records is called The Rise of the Rebel Angels. We welcome Johnny Polonsky on the next Taking a Walk. Well, uh, Yakshimash, Johnny. Thanks for being on Taking a Walk, albeit uh, virtually. All right. Thanks for having me. So congrats on the rise of the Rebel Angels, your uh, eighth album. And um, it's amazing thinking that you already have your ninth album in the can already. Um, what's your creative process that leads to so much great work? Well, I mean, I've been my, the first record I put out came out in the mid 90s. So eight, nine, that's not that many, really. Um, but I just write a lot. You know, I'm, I'll go through phases, too. Um, sometimes I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm always kind of messing around with whether it's guitar or keyboards or just kind of playing around with ideas or working on... I'm always sort of tinkering in some way. And sometimes it's very uh, the full thrust 
where I'm like really actively writing either just cause I feel like it or cause I have a project that I'm working towards. Um, I just like doing it. <laughs> so I do it, you know what I mean? Um, and it's something, I don't know. I've always just been drawn to writing songs and making music and, it's still endlessly fascinating to me. It's sort of like that cliche of like, the more, you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. And it's just mysterious and fun. And like, I mean, even if it's very, um, I mean, it can be anything you want it to be, you know, it's like, um, and it's what I do is basically just chords, melody and words, you know what I mean? And with that simple I don't it's, it's not even really a formula. It's just three ingredients. Like you can kind of do anything. And I love all sorts of music. Um, and I love, uh, well, I don't like being bored. You know, that that's something that is a constant. Um, I get frustrated very easily. Um, so I'm always looking for ways to stay engaged. And I mean, just in life in general and, and in the music I make, um, just finding ways to, just keep things going and, and keep getting better and keep, you know, getting better at the craft and just learning from the people. I, you know, I have lots of heroes and just people that really inspire me and, and, you know, continuously blow me away, whether they're alive or dead or friends or whatever, you got to do something. You know what I mean? Like, what are you going to do? Just like work your dumb job and pay your rent. You know what I mean? Like we're lucky people that get to, make stuff i mean anybody can make stuff really you know what i mean so i just decided i'm gonna do it you know do you remember that first time you picked up a guitar um i don't remember the very first time but i was in fourth grade and my teacher mr spangenberger used on fridays used to bring out a his acoustic guitar and he would play us even on a jet plane, John Denver, and who do like, like, you know, old folk songs, Erie Canal, stuff like that. Um, and sometimes Beatle tunes. And I was completely in love with the Beatles. Like ever since I was five, like long before I started playing, my parents had a pretty good record collection, pretty big record collection. And I, I gravitated towards the, remember those, the, the red and blue greatest hits of the Beatles that came out sometime in the seventies. Yeah. I was completely enamored of the red one. I was totally obsessed. I, you know, brought it upstairs and had like my little, you know, portal record player. And that's all I did was like, listen to, she loves you over and over. And, um, and when Mr. Spangenberger started playing, I don't know the, I don't even know if it was necessarily a light bulb going off my head. It was just sort of like, Oh, like you can actually do this you know? And, um, so I wanted to learn how to play guitar. Um, and my hands were too small. I was only, I guess, nine. Um, so he suggested my parents to get a, get me a baritone ukulele, which is the top four strings of the guitar. Um, and so they got me that and I just taught myself, like I, I just got a, a Mel Bay chord book and, you know, I, I borrowed Mr. Spangenberger's uh, book of, he had this awesome book of lyrics, with, like the chords written over it. And, you know, I just um, I totally went to town. Like I, I would do it for hours, like hours. You know what I mean? Like when you're a little kid and, and the kind of focus you have when, when you've got just nothing, you know what I mean? Like you're just, just you just living your life and going to school. Um, so I was completely obsessed and that was an incredible feeling. Um 
so I don't remember the first time I played a guitar. I'm, I'm sure he let me, you know, sit down and mess around with it. Um, but after I learned, you know, a few songs, you know, I would, I would get up and perform for the class too, doing like Duran Duran and stuff like that. But that was one thing too. Like it's, it's sort of interesting in retrospect. Like I didn't really buy that many records growing up, but my mom would always buy me sheet music. Like I would ask, to, you know, I would want the sheet music which is kind of cool. Like it, it, it was sort of strange to me realizing, you know, years later, like, like my record collection wasn't huge really like at, at the start, but I, I, I wanted to do it, you know, like I wanted to, like I, I watched, you know, tons of MTV, like radio was around, but I didn't really listen to radio so much. It was really, I, I was the, you know, the prime candidate for MTV generation. I was, um, eight when it came out. Um, that's all I did. I would like sit down in the basement and like, I don't know. Like, I, I mean, I remember distinctly, I would watch like six, eight hours of TV like every day. Like, I, I don't know how I like managed to fit that all in, like, and still go to school. Like I watched so much TV growing up. I don't, I don't even own a TV now, but like I learned so much just from watching MTV and, you know, theme songs were great back then. I mean, I don't know how they are now, but like, they were really good, you know, like, like good times and the Jeffersons and, um, I mean, Quincy Jones wrote the theme to Sanford and Son, you know what I mean? Um, God, Welcome Back, Cotter, John Sebastian, uh, incredible themes. Um, so I learned, I, I had a great guitar teacher too, this guy Jeff Jacobs, who I, I studied with for about two or three or four years maybe. Um, and he taught me some theory and, you know, um, he was a huge influence too. Like he turned me on to Frank Zappa and the mothers of invention. And, um, it was just, you know, and he would just kick my ass. Like I never practiced. And he was just like an, an older, you know, he was a teacher. He was my teacher. And he was just somebody that, uh, even though I really never practiced, like it was just, I learned a ton just from being around him and, and the few times I did practice, you know, but, um, what was the question? <laughs> Well, you grew up in um, an amazing area in Chicago, uh, and you got to visit um, in your teen years some pretty amazing venues. Talk about what it was like being a teenager going to the Metro or to the Riviera or the, the Aragon. What was that like? Incredible. I grew up in Wilmette, which is two cities north of Chicago along the lake. Um, there's Chicago, Evanston, where Eddie Vedder's from, and uh, Wilmette. And uh, one of the great things about Wilmette is that it's the last stop on the L train, you know, the the, the train, the subway, whatever. Um, so I would, I mean, starting around 12 years old, I would go into Chicago. I'll tell my parents I was going to the library, but really I was, I had this older friend named Cleo Patrick. <laughs> that was his real name. I was, I was about 12. He was like 28, 29, something like that. And he was a Jimi Hendrix imitator. I was completely obsessed with Jimi Hendrix. Um, and so I would go, I would take the train like two hours, like deep into the ghetto, like the worst part of Chicago is Jackson and Karloff. Just like, uh, yeah, it's just like a really bad section. Um, and we would just hang out in the basement and he had like a whole wall of vintage Marshall stacks and old Stratocasters and fuzz pedals. And that was incredible. And so I would do stuff like that. I would go to, I mean, not quite when I was 12, but like a little older, I would go to shows, um, at the Metro. I've, I mean, I've, I've spent like years at that club. 
remember seeing the, the Chili Peppers in 1988. That was a mind blower. And I used to, I guess around 14 or so, I um, I started going in the afternoon. Like I would show up for sound check, not at the Metro, but like a, like a bigger place like the Riviera. I would just dress all, I would just dress in black anyway back then, but like I would just dress in black because I noticed all the security guards dressed in black. So even though I was 14, like nobody questioned me. Like they just assumed I was like a short security guard or something. <laughs> we'd go to sound checks and like I'd, I'd started making tapes and I would, you know, use it as, as an excuse to go backstage and meet people. I was just telling someone this the other day. I went, I went to sound to a Sonic Youth sound check on the Dirty Tour in uh, early 90s. I was much older by then. I was like 19 or 20. But um, I... I went backstage after the sound check and, and talked to Thurston Moore. I was like, can you get me on the list? He's like, why? You're already here. I was like, I, I know, but I need to go home and have dinner with my mom. <laughs> and so I did. Like, I, I left and went and had dinner with my mom and came back for the show. And he put me on the list. A total gent. It was an incredible show. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Chicago, I don't know how it is so much now. I, I haven't been back in a while, but... Um, growing up there was really incredible the riviera the aragon which i ended up playing opening for audio slave like many years later which was incredible um the vic i i used to live kitty corner from the vic on on belmont and yeah great venues it was a great time in in music and in the culture in general um but yeah i was really lucky like if i had lived in a different city even one city over, it would have been a lot harder to get into the city. Well, I mean, there was still like the Amtrak, but that was because uh, I lived a block from that too. That was just a lot more expensive. That was like eight bucks a ride, I think, each way. And the L was like, I think, like 75 cents or something like that. You know, you almost um, created sort of an MBA program by accident with your. Um your crazy 411 calls that you used to make. Can you talk about some of those 411 calls? I love that story. Yeah. I mean, back when people had landlines and you'd call 411 directory information, you'd just say what city you wanted and give the person's name. Um, that was more like I was around, I guess, 17 or 18. I was listening to Tom Waits, the, the album Frank's Wild Years, which I really loved. And I really fell in love with the guitar player, Mark Rebo. His playing was just incredible to me. It was just so creative and outlandish and really funny. And and I, did, I just had a feeling, I mean, this is my insane teenage thinking, but I was like, I bet he's really nice and really smart and really funny. And um, he's got to live somewhere, right? You know, and he's, a, you know, he's legendary now, but back then, you know, not so much, early 90s. So I just called 411 and... You know, um, I think I just assumed he lived in New York or something. You know, back then, pre-internet, you didn't really have any information on anybody, especially if they were a little more obscure. And he was in the phone book, so I just called him up and made friends and, you know, told him I was a teenager from Chicago and I was a huge fan. I would pepper him with questions, and he was real gracious and helpful and answer everything. And, you know, I started sending him tapes, and he loved them. And that was incredible, too, just having... um, the support and encouragement of somebody older than me who was way more experienced and someone I really looked up to and whose music I really loved. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, like, I think it's natural if you're really serious about doing something to seek out a mentor. That wasn't, I, I wasn't intentionally doing that. And I wasn't, 
it did end up being networking, I guess, but I, I wasn't thinking about that at all. It's just like, I love these people. Like I want to know them, <laughs> you know, like when you're a kid and you think, cause you know, someone's music, you know them or that you want to know them. Um, and a lot of times it does work out that the art and the person are, are very similar. Sometimes not, but I have very few experiences where it went awry. And I mean, a lot of those people, some of them are, you know, are, are old dear friends now. Like I was a huge Frank Zappa fan. I remember getting, uh, stealing a couple hundred bucks, my parents' sock drawer so I could buy uh, scalped first row center tickets for his last tour in Chicago. Um, and a couple years later, I, I called director assistance for Scott Tunis, the bass player, just cause I, I, I would watch this, the, the, the live video, does humor belong in music over and over again. Me and my brother would watch that. And he, you know, Scott out of everybody for some reason seemed very extra vibrant and funny and just an incredible player. And I don't know, I was 18. I was like, I want to know that guy. So I called him up and he's one of my oldest, dearest friends. You know, we became great friends. Um, that's a thing, you know, it's like music really does bring people together. You know, I mean, these are like really ridiculous circumstances, but I don't know. I, I don't, I never understood why people, no one else really was doing that, you know? And now it's easy. It's never been easier to reach people, but it's also never been harder to reach people. Cause all you have to do is just ignore an email. I think it's a fantastic story because it shows your passion for your work and it shows that you've got some balls. <laughs> I love it. You know? Yeah. I was just in, in love with music and, and really enamored of, of these musicians. And I just wanted to know them and learn from them. And, you know, tell me what your experience was like uh, at the Berkeley school of music in Boston. I mean, Berkeley, I just went to, Let's see. Okay, so I graduated high school. I went to a semester of Northern Illinois in DeKalb, Illinois. And I just slept most of the time because I had mono. And I also was completely uninterested in school. And um, and that was right when Nirvana hit. And I, I was just, you know, it was just a really incredible time. And that's really when I, w- I went into overdrive, which is like calling people up and sending them my tapes and, was you know, recording a ton and just very fertile creative period um and after semester i quit and joined this band called white fat farm which is an incredible band um they were a lot older than me well at the time you know i was 18 uh they were like mid-20s late 20s i learned so much from being in that band for i mean no no one's ever heard of them it's like they, they never released any music but incredible songs and just uh this guy, Mike Smith, who's the singer and songwriter. Uh, I, I mean, I would still be writing songs and playing guitar, obviously, if I hadn't been involved with them. But he, he's been as influential on me as anybody, John Lennon or Jimi Hendrix or whoever. I, I did that for about seven months and quit. And I was just sort of floating around. And my aunt from Boston came to visit. And I was just sort of aimless, not knowing what to do with myself. And she suggested going to Berkeley which I really had no interest in. But by that point, I'd been a band with David Bowie and Reese Gabrels and the Sales Brothers. I knew Reese Gabrels lived in, in Boston. I think we might have already been friends by then. I forget. He was, he was another person that was a huge early supporter. I called him up and was just, you know, we'd send him tapes and 
um, same thing as Rebo, just like, you know, ask him a thousand questions and he would answer everything and just very, very supportive of what I was doing. So I was like, yeah, I'll go to Boston. You know, I had no intention of really, I didn't, I didn't care about the school. I just wanted to be close to Reeves. So that's what I did. So I went there a couple semesters and I went to classes and everything, but I, I really, uh, apparently they've put a lot of money into it and it's, it's supposed to be a good school now, but it was a dump when I was there. I had a guitar teacher who suggested I quit. <laughs> um, so I, I really didn't care. Like, like my, and my roommate had left. So I had this huge dorm all to myself and all I did was smoke weed and listen to pavement and my bloody Valentine and record on my four track and hang out with my friends. And, um, and I hooked up with Reeves. Like he was really, really great. Just took me around and introduced me to everybody in his circles. So I had a community and I started playing with other people and, yeah, that, that was a great time. Yeah. So the school, you know, I, I really didn't learn much of anything from Berkeley, but I had a good time. <laughs> <laughs> so you did the um, uh, infamous uh, iPhone demos. Um, and um, do you think now if you did those iPhone demos that um, because of technology changing with the phone, they, they would have been much different at all? I mean, you know, when you're a kid, especially like you just use whatever you have at your disposal, you know, um, sometimes I wonder what it'd be like being a teenager now. It'd be, it's gotta be so bewildering. Like there's just endless choices of everything and so much craziness in the world more than ever. But, um, yeah, I mean, I feel really lucky that all I had was a cassette four track and a broken mic from Radio Shack and a you know, a handful of instruments at home and, um, it's, you know, limitations force you to use your imagination and to, when you have, you know, there's nothing wrong with technology. Like every, every tool is just a tool. So it's great. Like I, I, and I've got pro tools now on my computer and, you know, I've got a program that's got quite literally, I think like 10,000 sounds or something like that. So it's amazing to have all that at your disposal, but it's, um, it was really great for me, especially learning how to make things work with very few uh, options. So I don't know. Like I, I like both, but I, I do miss. I'm always kind of trying to uh, get back to the state of mind of when I was just starting out. And, you know, it, my mindset back then was just I'm, I'm just messing around. Like I'm just trying stuff. I think that's a great way to approach things when you don't take things too seriously, then you can really do anything. You can go anywhere and you're not bound to any style or any kind of anything, you know, especially like once it's easy, like once you start putting stuff out in the world to um, pay too much attention to how people might perceive you or what you've done in the past, that might've gotten a good reaction or whatever. Cause none of it matters really. I mean, it's great. Like, like I, 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 I put stuff out cause I want to reach people and I love when, I do when they respond positively, you know, the point is just me doing my thing. And regardless of like how people respond, you know, sometimes they like it, sometimes they don't, but all that really matters is just me living my life and just like doing what I want to do, which um, sounds overly simplistic, but can be very difficult to really uh, pull off sometimes. What's your take on artificial intelligence uh, now in and around um, recording music? It's interesting. Um, I've listened to a few of those tracks. And, you know, it's kind of funny. 
you know, hearing whatever, like John Lennon singing an Oasis song or something like that. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what happens with it. I don't have any, I mean, people are, some people are freaking out about it the same way people freaked out about drum machines. Like they're going to replace drummers and it's just another tool. Um, hopefully they won't replace humans on the planet. But, um, other than that, I don't really have, I don't really have much of an opinion on, on AI. It's still such early days. I mean, I check it out every once in a while, but, I'm not overly obsessed with technology. Like I never have been like, I, I, I love guitars and, you know, I have enough knowledge with um, computers and pro tools to do what I need to do, but I'm not like a pro tools whiz and I'm not a programming whiz. I, I just know enough to do what I want to do. And sometimes not even that much, you know? Um, so I'm not, you know, technology is interesting, but after a certain point, I don't really care. Your first moment you met Johnny Cash and then ultimately worked with him. Tell me about that experience. I never met him. I had the opportunity to meet him. Um, I, I was I went to a Cash show at the Pantages Theater in L.A. Beck was opening. That was an incredible experience. I was just out in L.A. visiting. I, I wasn't living there yet. But I was already on American, on the label. Um and Rick came up to me and asked if I wanted to meet Johnny Cash. I was really drunk, and I foolishly said no. Like, I, you know, internally I was like, "Oh, I can't meet Johnny Cash. I'm too drunk," you know, which is ridiculous. Like thinking that you know Johnny Cash is going to judge you for being too drunk. It's like thinking that Lemmy's going to judge you for being too high on speed or something. <laughs> so I really wish I would have met him, but um, I didn't. But um, I ended up playing like years later like 2020 i guess 20 years ago almost 2004 2005 um i was living in la and i reconnected with rick rick rubin he asked me to play on there was a i think like 60 unreleased songs in various forms of uh completion it was me and Smokey hormel who's a great guitar player and bass player he's played with beck and tom waits and um Mike and Ben Mont from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and this great guitar player named Matt Sweeney. Um, all of us were just in Rick's basement, which was converted to a studio. And for about, I guess, two weeks before Christmas and two weeks after Christmas, we just plowed through about 60 songs. That was an incredible experience. You know, I mean, just playing with those players alone was really amazing. Um, it's just so easy. That was the th- one of the things that was so um, surprising, I guess. Well, I mean, not so surprising, but like a pleasant surprise. It's like, wow, this is like so easy to play with these people. You know, it's just very, everyone's just so good and there's no egos and people just do it. You know what I mean? There's no uh, stumbling over doubt or trepidation or anything like that. Um, just playing music. And a lot of those songs never got released either. A bunch did. So I'm on, I think it's American 4 and 5, and which is maybe like 20 songs or 25 songs. But yeah, there's a, there's a bunch that's still unreleased. Um, that was an amazing experience. That was surreal. I mean, I grew up listening to Johnny Cash. You know, I remember driving around Wilmette, you know, just like listening to the Sun, the sun recordings and... Um, yeah, I played on the last song he ever wrote, like the 409, or is it 309? I always forget. There's a Beach Boys song, the, the 309? 409. 409. Like, like the 309. That, that's the Johnny Cash song. 
Four <laughs> is, the, is the Beach Boys song. You must have learned a lot from Rick Rubin uh, in your in your time with him. Um, what did he teach you about sort of looking inward? I, mean, I learned a ton from being around Rick. Um, for me, the most obvious things that come to mind are just, you know, when making a record, just surrounding yourself with the right people. He just hires... I mean, there's a lot of great musicians in the world. There's a lot of people that can do it. It's just about hiring the right people for the particular project. And he's just really good at it's like a casting director. Like, you know, it's just like you get the right people for the part and it's pretty smooth sailing. Like he doesn't really say much because he hires the right people that, that kind of know what to do. But when something needs to be said, he's very clear and direct and, you know, exactly what he means. He's very articulate. And especially for a non-musician, like I think he plays a little guitar, but like he's basically a non-musician, but he's way more articulate when it comes to talking about music or arrangements than almost every musician I've ever played with. <laughs> I, I also used to, um, I was the guitar tech for Audio Slave for a couple of years, and I was around when, um, that's how Rick and I reconnected, because he was producing their second record, and I had become their guitar tech. So I was there, you know, every day when he would be in pre-production with them, so that was really interesting, watching him dissect the songs and... Um, and obviously they're great songwriters anyway, great band, but he would just make suggestions to see, just to mess around and, and experiment and, and see if they couldn't make it better, if they tried this or this, if we move this, move this here, maybe try a bridge, maybe take away a bridge, you know, all these little um, suggestions. I guess that's it, really. It's just surrounding yourself with the right people and just communicating very directly, and there's never he's a really nice person you know what I mean like you never get a there's not a, a shred of like dictator vibe or anything like that but he's very much in control like he's it kind of carries this weight of like he's the man but he's not arrogant you know so it's nice to that's what you want you want you want to you know what in that kind of situation like you want to feel like somebody's steering the ship even if we're all like a part of it and contributing You've had such a, a fascinating group of people that you've uh, you've been around uh, through your career. Um, I, I think of you know Frank Black and and Pete Yorn and you know just this incredibly you know diverse group. Um, is there somebody that you've recently discovered uh, that's of a more uh, vintage uh, nature that you just got turned on to? And is there someone conversely brand new that you've just gotten turned on to? This great Japanese guitar player. He's, he's dead now. Takashi Terayuchi. It's an amazing surf guitar player. Um, great. I mean, like tons of albums, like they're all on Spotify and they're all in Japanese. So I have no idea what the titles are, but, um, excellent guitar player and like really creative and just strange, wonderful. Um, and, uh, as far as contemporary bands, I recently fell in love with Fiddler. I love this band Fiddler. They've got a bunch of records, just a great, really energetic, fun kind of aggro punk band, very melodic from uh, San Diego, I believe. I like them a lot. So when you think of the, um, the beauty of live performance 
and you're going to be. You just recently, uh, you know, d- did the show in in Brooklyn, and I know you've got other shows going on. Has, does the electricity of live performance uh, ever change in a different way for you? Mm, I mean, it's always different depending on the venue and the crowd, and but, but whatever. Like, like I mean, in, you mean in terms of like now versus a few decades ago? Yeah. Uh, not really. I mean, maybe I'm I'm more confident now and or just less full of doubt which i guess is the same thing <laughs> you know what i mean it's like you just go up and do it you know what i mean and not in a jaded way it's just like i still get nervous sometimes but i think it's a good thing it's really just sort of getting charged up and and i mean nervous might even be the wrong word it, it, i get nervous if if like i feel like my voice isn't uh up to par or if if the band doesn't know that if I don't have confidence in the band or whatever, but I'm playing with really good players right now and I feel really good. So we just go up and do it. You know, that's it really. So yeah, I I really enjoy it. I I love playing live. I I, I really want to get on tour. That's the ideal. It's just so expensive. You know, it's really expensive to tour. Um, And there's obviously got to be a demand or unless you're getting on like a, uh, a tour with a bigger act. So that's that's the quest right now. It's just trying to get on the road. How did you get so comfortable in front of a camera? Aren't we all in front of a camera now? <laughs> you know? Yeah, true. That's just life. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I'm not. It's. I mean, I, right now it's not not a big deal. But like in general, like they're very unnatural situations. But um, yeah, I mean, cameras are everywhere now. So when you think about the uh, the ninth album coming out, um, it's going to come out. It's later in the fall, right? Uh, either the fall or early next year, one of the two. And um, it, do you feel it takes a different turn than your previous work? Um, yeah, there's a lot of guest stars on it. There's a bunch of guest drummers, and um, there's an orchestra on two tunes which I've never done before got some of my favorite musicians of all time that are playing on it which is sort of and i didn't mean for it to happen it just kind of ended up that way you know it's a little more succinct and focused in a way than this most recent record not not one's not like better or worse or you know it's just a different thing yeah i'm, ex- I'm excited for the for the next one to come out i'm, I'm writing for the, the 10th one you know what i mean like I, i'm excited for all of them like I, and i want to put them out and have as many people hear them as possible, but I'm always like looking forward to the, the next one. It never goes fast enough either. I, I wish, you know, like in the sixties, you know, I mean, Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, people re- release two or three records a year. You know, I wish we could do that now. I mean, we can, but it's just like, it's, uh, you can do whatever you want really, especially these days. Uh, it's not just about releasing music. I mean, I've been releasing music for the last 10 years on my own. But it's also trying to reach people, and there's it just takes time to, you know, getting uh, a song licensed in a movie or a TV show or something like that, or getting on a tour, you know, to really like build and get some kind of momentum. Well, I guess, I guess it's really more career stuff than you know, it's all interrelated. But it's to me, it's really just about reaching as many people as I can. There's a part of me that just wants to release music all the time, regardless of anything. Well, I don't want to just release stuff in a vacuum. Like I've done that, and it's just um, it's sort of depressing. 
I mean, it's always great to, I, I, I love what I do and I'm, I'm always excited about what I put out. Like I don't put anything out unless I'm really excited about it, but you know, you want to, you want to reach people too and doing it on my own. It's, it's expensive, man. I mean, it's expensive anyway, but now it's expensive for somebody else who's not me. So that's, that's a good thing. What, what are some causes that are important to you? Making the planet habitable. You know, the homeless problem is ridiculous. I used to live in L.A. Like, it, it, it was like a, I think it was like 40 or 50,000 people homeless in L.A., which is completely insane. I mean, it's insane anywhere that, that exists, but um, there's quite a bit uh, in New York. And I just dropped something off at the, the Bowery Mission. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that deserve attention, but those are the two that really spring to mind for me. What advice would you give to somebody listening to this that's a musician just uh, in the early stages of their career? Just play what you want to play. Play what you want to hear. Like, never stop being the listener or the fan, the audience, you know, because you're the first audience member. You know, it should be music that, that you actually want to listen to which sounds strange but like that's that's a common thing to for one reason or another to make music for reasons other than um just because you love it especially once you start getting a little feedback from people just make the music that you want to hear plus it'll be way more personal that way and that's going to be what people will respond to when there's something genuine when you can you know you even non-musicians everybody anyone can tell like when there's a a real palpable sense of joy or a sense of discovery or you know i mean like you can just tell when somebody's doing it for real or whether they're just you know it might be very good or a well-made product or whatever but you can tell when there's like no real genuine enthusiasm or i can anyway like i i feel feel like people can whether they realize it or not no. So just do what you really want to do, you know, because you love it, not because you're trying to get something out of it. Well, thanks for the music that you bring to us. That's uh, raw. It's authentic. Uh, it, obviously, it's something that brings you joy, but it brings us joy. And uh, thanks for everything that you bridge together through all your musical influence. I absolutely love that as well, Johnny. Oh, thanks, Buzz. I appreciate the kind words. Thank you, man. Thank you for being on Taking a Walk. Thank you for having me. Taking a Walk with Buzz Knight is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists. Like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. 
We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count.